start on demand. On demand. Winnipeg's homicide total for the year 2019 is now 39, after a fatal shooting at an Exchange District nightclub early Saturday, and then the passing of three-year-old Hunter Hayes Straitsmith, who was stabbed multiple times in his sleep last week and was taken off life support on Saturday. We'll speak to a community activist who is mad about the increased violence in this city, and he'll give some ideas on what we can all do to try to change things. Is Canada's tap water safe? That's the headline at globalnews.ca after a year-long investigation revealed there are high levels of lead in tap water across Canada. Does that concern you? I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Lauren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. This is the Monday, November 4th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Did you guys... Take advantage of the extra hour. Uh, I don't know, like take advantage in that I stayed up later knowing that I was going to get the hour or went to bed early to get oh, more sleep. However you want. I think sort of. Like I, I, we all had this conversation Saturday night. It was a group of us and we're like, oh, it's getting to be midnight, you know, and kids are need to go to bed, all those kinds of things. And then someone's like, or is it midnight? And then you have this, woo, like it's actually only 11 o'clock kind of thing. So... No, then we stayed up later. <laughs> my buddy used to own a nightclub, uh, still owns nightclubs. Uh, he's just not my buddy anymore. And uh, he always used to argue with the liquor commission in British Columbia that he should be able to stay open an extra hour on the night of the time change because of when it happens. Yep. And uh, he never won that argument. So uh, I indulged a little bit on Saturday night, went to a wedding social and... Didn't really take advantage, but last night went to bed at 7.30. Oh, wow. Which is really 8.30, mm, I guess. That's awesome. So felt great until this morning when I couldn't find my wallet or my phone. Great uh, costume, by the way, Greg, uh, for the social. And we, we put a pic- we put the picture up on our 680CJOB Instagram. Greg dressed up as Paul Bearer mm-hmm. from WWE uh, alongside his buddy who was dressed up like The Undertaker. So outstanding effort, Greg. It, it was very impressive. Thank you. If I hadn't known you were doing that, I wouldn't have known that was you because you tweeted it out and I had to like zoom in and be like, that <laughs> is Greg. Like I know it's Greg, but it was so well done. You both like kind of channeled your inner... Wrestler? I don't know. Drama it's queen? I don't know. Not really my thing to even get dressed up, and wrestling is sort of never been my thing, but I've always kept a couple fingers on the pulse of it, so it was odd to dress up that way, but it was good. I had to shave my beard and had to put the black stuff in my hair and all sorts of different alterations to my appearance, but uh, it, it was fun. It went over very well at the social, so shout out to my buddy Jeff for talking me into that. Nice to be in a couple's costume with a buddy. <laughs> nice, nice. Now, as far as the time change goes, I Diana McMillan told us most people don't take advantage of the extra hour, actually get an extra hour mm-hmm. of sleep. They just stay up later, which is exactly what I did. Well, there's there's not taking advantage of it and completely, like, putting up both middle fingers yeah, at it. Yeah, which, which is, is what, you, what did, you did, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, I think I stayed up until... I don't know, 3.30 Saturday night. So I guess technically it would have been on 4.30 time. And then I woke up on the couch, of course. Of course. At like 7 in the morning. And I didn't go to bed till almost 10 o'clock last night. So I'm stupid and I'm tired today. (laughs) You know, I think I'm going to get you because you fall asleep on the couch quite a bit. There's these things you can get for babies, like in a little alarm. Yeah. Where they, if they don't roll, it's like a mattress, right? And it's watching how they roll and sleep, and an alarm will go off if they roll onto their stomach. I can't remember how it works. Okay, it's about it's about preventing bad things happening in the crib. But I'm gonna get you one and lay it underneath your couch. Yeah. And once you lay down for too long, maybe maybe it'll have a sensor that'll like wake you up and be like, "Go to bed, Brett. Get into a bed." I like that idea, and I actually have tried to set alarms for myself. but I just, I don't know. Do you just sleep right through them? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. So this whole, whole being a bachelor is fun, uh, but I really need to do a better job taking care of myself. <laughs> I am just a train wreck on the weekend. I was at the McDonald's at Grant Park uh, Center on Saturday afternoon after volleyball tournament the boys were in, and uh, my boys have their last names. They also curled on Saturday. Long story short, somebody recognized the boy's last name, came up, asked if, 
I was who they thought that, that I was. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And there were five guys around, sitting around having coffee. They have coffee at this McDonald's every day. And they wanted to pitch a TV show idea. They said, this is the show. This is the talk show, the stuff we talk about right here. And I think that the, the real show might be in your apartment while you're, <laughs> you're trying to find yourself to bed. I think we need to... Plant some cameras in your apartment, McGarry, because I think it might be beyond entertaining to, to see what you get up to and, and and just to watch you fall asleep on the couch. I think we could get millions of viewers on a YouTube channel or something like that. Will Brett make it to bed tonight? <laughs> we, could, we could do wagers. Yeah. We, could, uh, we could connect with uh, some of the online betting venues <laughs> and find out if that actually happens. I think it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, well, I suspect today I'm going to be going to bed probably at like 5 or 6 p.m. You need a baby gate right across your living room so you don't even go in there. You just go straight into the bedroom. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. baby ideas. Do you see a common theme you, but there might be a common theme here. You're regressing. I, I am essentially a child, so <laughs> yeah, I am not doing a good job of taking care of myself, but it's just such a damn comfortable couch. Well, then if you get a good sleep on it, whatever. So today we have... I mean, we've been having some fun this morning already here, but we do have a lot of serious stuff to talk about. And community activist Sal Burroughs is going to join us at 737 because, Loren, you talked to him over the weekend and he says he's mad. Mm-hmm. He's mad and he says he's coming in with some pretty strong opinions about what he thinks we should be doing about crime in our city and how we should be reacting and how we should be feeling about it. And I think this might be a prevailing theme on a number of issues. I talked to a couple advocates over the weekend for different things. One with Sal Burroughs, who works in this community tirelessly for decades to try to get rid of uh, drugs and crime and all the other things that have been bringing down Point Douglas. And then I also spoke to a domestic violence advocate because one of the themes out of this horrific story of the three-year-old who was stabbed uh, in his sleep last week is that his mom had been trying to get out of this cycle of violence in this relationship and she's just so stressed this domestic violence advocate about us taking a step back and I think that's how many of us feel this morning when we wake up about all the steps we've taken forward as a city to get rid of this reputation we have as this violent capital and the murder capital and all those things and we felt really positive I think 18 months ago about where we were and now we wake up every day kind of throwing up our hands in the air like what like it's another new low day after day after day well it feels as though every time we turn around there's a new story of lawlessness actions without consequences people are getting frustrated with that notion that you can that there are certain parts of our community that feel as though they can do whatever they want without any consequences and I think it's getting us all down and we spoke to Mo Sabrin we spoke to Danny Smythe last week and the idea of resources to enforce non-contact orders to enforce the different things that we expect to be enforced law on the law front in this community it feels as though it's not being done it could be being done on in some aspects but it feels as though it's not and as we talk about when it comes to crime and safety perception is reality Mm -hmm. and if you perceive that you're unsafe that's the prevailing attitude and that's really all that matters whether you feel safe or not a lot of us are not feeling safe Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us today on 680 CJOB. And it's safe to say many people are at a loss for words this morning, trying to come to grips with one of the more violent weeks this city has seen. And maybe has ever seen. Uh, Early Saturday morning, we learned a man had been shot and killed at a nightclub in the exchange. His death was the fourth homicide of the week and the 38th homicide of the year. And then just hours later, we learned that we had our 39th homicide. Hunter Hayes Smith Strait, just three years old, was taken off life support Saturday afternoon. He had been stabbed on Wednesday morning while he slept and was rushed to hospital but took his last breaths Saturday afternoon. And so last night, dozens of people met outside his home on Pritchard to light candles, to cry, and to also ask what can be done. He didn't do anything to deserve what happened to him. He was an innocent little person who deserved to grow up. He deserved to have birthdays. He deserved all the things that yours and mine and our children will have this year. Uh, I think that we, a lot of us, we think about our own children and if something like this happens and, and how senseless it is and that we just want to protect our, our babies and, and pull them closer. 
Daniel Jensen, who's 33 years old, was arrested hours after that stabbing. Now, he had originally been charged with aggravated assault and attempted murder and also charged with an earlier assault on the young child's mother. We're learning from police that as this investigation progresses, of course, those charges will probably be upgraded. Investigators allege Jensen was with the child's mother, Clarice Smith, at a Main Street bar earlier that day when the two got into a fight and she was assaulted. Records show she had filed a protection order against Jensen earlier this year. Bernadette Smith is an MLA for Point Douglas, which is the area where this uh, stabbing occurred. And she was at the vigil last night. We need the police, we need government, but we also need community because this is us doing it to one another. And, you know, Daryl was talking about forgiveness and love and, you know, outreaching your hand to someone, someone who needs help coming from that harm reduction place, that place of love that uh, we all need to get back to. I grew up in this North End community, like I remember playing on these streets late at night and not having to worry about, you know, being safe or someone harming me. And we want that community back. We need to fight for that community. And that community has seen a large part of the crime this week. I'm just getting this email now from the Winnipeg School Division, and it's actually brought in clinical support service responding to this recent wave of violence by being on hand to provide support in schools where needed. It actually sent a notice home to parents last week in this core area saying, because of all this violence, they're aware of the impact it can have. So that to know that that's the steps we're now taking in our schools, just to talk about kids who might be hearing about crime, let alone actually being the victims of crime, is just super concerning. Now, last night, uh, Mayor Bowman sent out a tweet that said, uh, our hearts are heavy this morning with the tragic loss of Henter Strait-Smith and our thoughts are with his family and friends at this time. And uh, obviously lovely thoughts, but very reminiscent of the whole idea of thoughts and prayers and the aftermath of school shootings in the United States. In my opinion, I have a very strong opinion about this, and uh, we'll talk about that later on this morning. We'd, l- we'd like your take on this, 780-6868. Where do, where do we go next? What do we do? Hundreds of thousands of Canadians could be consuming tap water laced with high levels of lead leaching from aging infrastructure and plumbing. This follows a large collection of newly released data and documents obtained by Global News. It's a public health crisis of massive proportions. You've probably heard about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. It's possible every single person living in Flint may have been exposed to lead through the city's contaminated water supply. People right away said the water tasted bad, smelled bad, felt bad on their skin. The state knew about it and did nothing. The of the water supply in Flint, Michigan has sparked outrage across the country. In Canada, people are also unknowingly consuming dangerous amounts of lead from their drinking water. In some cities, lead levels were found to be comparable to those of Flint at the height of its water crisis. We're probably talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the population of Canada that right now, every time they open their taps, there's, there's a good chance that they're getting a little bit of lead coming out of that pipe. Canadians are not being informed on when lead levels are high, not only in their homes, but in their schools and daycares. That's Mike and Megan. They've been part of this huge year-long investigation that has involved around 130 university students and journalists who have all been investigating lead-contaminated water in Canada. I think people are completely in the dark. So water, for the most part, contains no lead, generally speaking, when it leaves the treatment plants. And earlier this year, the city of Winnipeg actually said the water coming from Show Lake, which is our drinking source, has no detectable traces of lead in it. The issue, and we've known this for a while, is those lead surface lines that connect homes and apartment buildings. And they're usually found in older neighbourhoods. In the summer, the city of Winnipeg offered free tests to about 23,000 homes that may have lead pipes. It also gave those homeowners a list of ways to avoid higher lead content in drinking water. And we're going to put some asks out to the city of Winnipeg this morning about where they are with those tests and what they've shown. But the problem is if lead pipes are found on the homeowner's property side, 
Replacing them is basically up to the homeowner, which could be thousands of dollars to replace them, Greg. We're going to have a bigger discussion after 8 o'clock with Global's Marnie Blunt about what that means for people here and in the city of Brandon. But experts say that this joint study on lead water shows is just how much we don't know about the water coming into our homes. And that's because many municipalities just aren't aware of how many lead service lines are within their own city limits. That's one of the issues in Brandon, as they have no records detailing just how many homes could be at risk. Michelle Provost is an engineering professor at Polytechnique in Montreal and says Canada needs to be more transparent with its tracking methods. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm uh, disappointed. I'm angry. <laughs> in the last 15 years of working um, intensively in lead control, the one thing that's really missing across Canada is transparency. If you look at what you see um, in large American cities, if you have lead in the school in Chicago, you type the name of your school, you can actually know how much lead there is in the tap of your child's classroom. So that's transparency. If you want to know in Cincinnati if you have a lead service line and how high your lead is, you type your address, you find it. I don't understand why the monitoring data is not public. I don't understand that. It should be. Um, but that's uh, the movement to transparency has started in Canada. I hope it intensifies and I, every person that, should, that has a high number should be advised and told uh, very clearly what to do. So I think back in the spring, Health Canada actually changed the guidelines for lead in your water. And so you might find yourself now, if you got a test done, that you're above the acceptable guidelines because they've, they've changed what is acceptable as far as they're concerned when it comes to drinking, making the standards more stringent. But I know there's a lot of people in this city who have, they know they have lead pipes on their property, but then the question becomes, well, I can't afford to replace those. those, those are, that can be thousands or tens of thousands of dollars depending on where you live or how many pipes you'd have to replace. What would be in, involved in changing that? Like if I say I'm going to replace all the lead pipes what what like what would be I'd be tearing up my yard my yeah. house the biggest thing would be the service line from the main water service and that is typically in the front yard uh, so depending on how far that line is you'd have to dig a trench out and then take out the pipe and then that obviously goes either underneath your house or in through the in through the foundation so there's work involved there and Perhaps you have lead pipes within your house, so we've heard nightmares and stories about having to replace knob and tube wiring on the electrical side, taking out the lead pipes and replacing it with more modern uh, plastic uh, PVC technology would be uh, would be a substantial investment as well. But uh, maybe the government's going to have to step up here and, and supply some low-interest loans or some other sort of program to make sure that people can afford to do this. Uh, to, to, to say, hey, we installed this and he, you have a problem and now it's up to you to fix it, I think is... I, I, I don't think that's what we expect from our government. Well, I know Brandon has a cost-sharing program, I think, where like they'll help try to help you out to replace the lines there. But I know I've read stories in the past that very few people take advantage of that, A, because they don't even know they might have a problem to begin with, which is one of the big problems if we can't track it and say, like, hey, by the way, these homes in that area, you want to get this t- water regularly tested. And if you're not going to replace the pipes... Make sure you're filtering it and doing all the things that you need to do, right? And so I think we have an awareness of it. I think this is one of those things, though. It's kind of like if it tastes good and you can't see it, you don't smell it, and you mm-hmm. don't really notice it. You kind of just say, eh, like no big deal. Yep. And then 10, 20 years from now, your kid might be ill or you might be ill. And then you're going to be like, oh, right, lead. It was the lead. Here we go again. Come out. I'm heading out. And all I'm taking with me is my phone, wallet, keys. Yeah, phone, wallet, keys. Just those three things, please. Need my phone, wallet, keys. Got my credit cards in my wallet. Got my phone, you can call it. Master lock on my front door. That's what my keys are for my phone, wallet, keys. Yeah, phone, wallet, keys. Good things come in trees, need my phone, wallet keys. If I'm going to the zoo, I need my phone, wallet keys. If I'm getting a face tattoo, I need my phone, wallet keys. If I'm going out to a wedding, 
If it's winter time and I'm sledding, if I'm at that daddy door to dance, my phone while the keys are in my pants, I'm going on vacation to the West Indies. And I don't got no luggage, just got phone wallet. <laughs> <laughs> so then you realize you do need your passport, and it just goes downhill from there for Adam Sandler. I actually do those checks as well. Like, I make sure I have my phone, wallet, yep. keys, and I also make sure I have my uh, key cards. Yeah. But yeah, I do that. Oh, the key cards. I sing too. this song now when I do it. I mean, Adam Sandler has helped me immensely. Yeah. <laughs> I just go phone, wallet, keys. Yeah, well, phone, wallet, keys. Well, we wanted to talk about this because Mackling, uh, he had a panic this morning. What? Well, you, you tell us the story, Greg. What well, I see, I'm running two phones right now, and I have essentially two wallets going right Is now. Is a Breaking Bad scenario? Uh, just, no, I'm not going <laughs> to. I don't need to get into the whole details as to why. It's not nefarious okay. in nature, okay? Oh, yeah. Paul Marie said there was nothing sinister about Dustin Bufflin Yeah, either, fair so, enough. Yeah. Well, yeah, he can only tell us so much. Yeah. I can only tell you so much this morning, and that's the fact that I couldn't find one of my phones and one of my wallets, and I went into a severe panic because we were out for dinner last night, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've left it behind at the restaurant, and I don't want to be that person that phones i know i left it there at the restaurant because i used to be on the other side of those phone calls it's like if you're so sure why did you leave it here in the first place right the 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 idea that you know exactly where it is when you've lost it doesn't wash with me so that took me a good 20 minutes and i left both items nowhere where i would normally leave them so it's it's not a very good feeling no it's not i I went out Saturday afternoon, met some some colleagues, went to Santa Lucia on St. Mary's. So I walked from uh, from Osborne Village to uh, Santa Lucia. It's like a 20-minute walk. And I got halfway there, and that's when I decided to do the check. And I realized my wallet was not in my jacket. It was in my other jacket uh, because I've got two jackets on the go right now, and I forgot to take the wallet out. So that was frustrating. And last week or the week before, hang got on to just work. For, hang on just for a second, though. Did you still continue on to Santa Lucia and give your friends the old, oh, jeez, oh, I forgot my wallet. I thought about, I thought about it because I thought, have I gone too far to go back and get this thing? Because I'm going to be late now if I, if I go home to get my wallet. And I knew that they probably would cover me, but I just I couldn't, in good conscience, show up there with my hat in hand and say, please, uh, please help me, I forgot my wallet. <laughs> so I went back and got it. And last week I got to work, realized my phone was sitting at home. Normally, like the phone isn't, I think, completely essential, but I use it so much for work that I just I had to go home and get it. And that was so frustrating, and I don't know why I'm not doing the... I got to start singing the song, Jeff. <laughs> it's really helpful. See, I don't, like, I always think I've forgotten my phone, wallet, or keys, but usually they're just somewhere in oh, my no, purse. Oh, no, no, no. You forgot. Oh, I forget my key card all the time. You forget your purse all the time. Well, I can't find my purse. That's not oh, the same thing as okay. forgetting the purse. I just don't know where I've put it. But Did I, you guys have the call? From McNabb, you know, the panic call into the newsroom. Oh, yes, all yeah. the time. Yeah. 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 Can you let me back in? I left my purse there and the, car, the keys in there, too. I oh, just yeah. tweeted a few weeks ago that one of these days my husband's just going to change his voicemail to, if this is Loren, no, I do not know where your phone, wallet, or keys are. Because I'm always like, hey, how's it going? Do you know where? Uh? He's like, why would I know? Like, I'm at work. Why would I have your wallet, phone, or keys? Like, I have yeah. enough problems keeping track of my own stuff, let alone knowing where Somebody your else's. stuff is. Exactly. Yeah. Well, my, my wife hounds me all the time because I, I would say at least two or three times a month, I will get to work and realize, forgot my phone and my wallet. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh, but I have my Allie keys. Moore? Yeah. I know. Well, because she says, leave them by the key box at the front door. You won't forget them there. Yeah. But I have this other place that I like to leave them, and then I get distracted, and next thing you know, and it's not, it's 45 minutes to go back home to get the phone, wallet, and I haven't forgotten the keys, obviously, but yeah, so uh, when I get to the parking lot, I'm I won't say what I say in the parking lot, yeah. but you kind of get the drift. I've, I've had yeah. a panic moment myself. Uh, I used to play drums in a band, and uh uh, set up my kits uh, the night before because we were playing two nights. So I get there on Saturday. So my kits all there, everything's set up, and uh, gets to the gig, and I uh, go, uh oh, uh oh, I don't got my sticks. Oh, no. <laughs> my sticks are at home, <laughs> and it's and like home is far away. So like there's no going back. And so luckily I, I look into the back of the car and found three sticks. Oh great! And I was praying, don't break, don't break. <laughs> and but oh yeah, you made it break. through. I made it through. 
Thank God. So Adam Sadler needs to write a new There's song. Gonna, for I was you, just going right? to say new lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> Own Wallachie sticks. Wait, now, how different were these sticks to the the ones that you forgot? Oh, they they're just worn sticks from the night before, but oh, okay. uh, like they were brand new. So I was just praying, like, so I, usually I bring like five pairs of sticks just in case. Oh my God! And uh, He's well prepared. Yeah. yeah. How so often, for that and time, I was on not. the drum kit. Apparently, <laughs> how often do they break? Um. Well, you can. Some, sometimes I've had like brand hey, new rock pairs. and roll, man. Rock yeah. and roll. So I have to do the three sets of forty-five minutes, three forty-five minute sets. So. Yeah, those composite drumsticks just aren't the same way as the old wooden ones. <laughs> <laughs> they need to change the way we do things now, though, because it's like we have six different coats, and you might, if you're female, you might have twenty different purses, and so things just get put into so many spots now. Let's we need to go back to the times where, I don't know, one coat, no purse, something simpler. You you even were saying you have too many coats. Well, that's to why keep I, track of things, yeah, right? Because I left my wallet in my fall other coat. fall coat, so I've got two sort of in rotation. And on Friday, I left my. I got to work and realized my swipe card to get into the building was in my suit jacket because I had been wearing that for my Clark Kent costume on Thursday. And can I tell oh, you how geez. proud I was, Kelly, that I came to Brett's rescue with my key card to let him in? Very, wow. Very responsible. Was That's of not me. true. I let him in. No. You weren't even here yet. I lent him my key card. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, you lent him. Yeah. That was to get back in for the second vape or whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yes, thank you, McNabb. For, thank you, Jeff, for coming to get me. And thank you, McNabb, for letting me borrow your swipe card for the rest of the morning. It's so hard being the responsible one in this group. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, please. <laughs> Well, let us know at 204-780-6868. Have you ever forgotten something for an important event? Did you, ever, did you get somewhere and realized, oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot this? Or do you have that person in your life? Who, we used to have a friend who constantly gave the old, oh, I don't have my wallet. Like, I forgot it to the point where you're like, Richard, this, I feel like this is a scam. I'm driving you home, Richard. And, and it's not Richard Cloutier, by the way. And if you don't have cash, we're going to the ATM and yeah. you are paying your share exactly. of the bill. Exactly, exactly. It's not been a great morning. We're getting word that uh, somebody texted the CJOB Instagram to let us know Highway 1 East, there are trucks in the ditch. So the highway is not great this morning, thanks to the snow, Loren. Yeah, we want to bring you now to Chris Stammers with Environment Canada just to talk about how long we're going to see this snow fall this morning and what might bring later this week. Good morning, Chris. Yeah, good morning. So let's start with the first all. The forecast says snow showers. And so what do we mean by that? What are we seeing uh, as we head into our heaviest part of our commute? Yeah, so we had a cold front that tracked through the province here this morning, and we're seeing some flurries along it, so giving some uh, brief uh, bursts of heavy snow. Um, That will taper off later this morning, um, and we're expecting about a centimeter or two here this morning, making things a little bit slick for the morning commute. It was, it was fairly warm yesterday, so that mixed with the snow is a little bit of a slippery combination. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's some melting on the streets here in the city, but certainly as you get outside of the city, uh, slipperier conditions. Yeah, and then I see that in terms of the long-term forecast for this week, we're way below normal this week. Yeah, we're going to be below normal for the foreseeable future. Uh We'll see falling temperatures this afternoon, and then we don't really start to recover. Maybe a brief recovery Friday, but uh, generally below normal for the foreseeable future, unfortunately. We're all shaking our heads in here, Chris, as we all know. We've had a kind of brutal fall, terrible September, uh, wet and snowy October, and now this. Do we have a sense? of Is this kind of what we're facing for the winter, or is it too early to say for a long-term forecast that November and December could be low or below normal? Yeah, it's too early to say, really. Um, Certainly the next couple weeks looking to be below normal, but uh, really hard to say beyond that. Uh, Wouldn't uh, hold out uh, for a return of warmer temperatures yet. Oh, thanks, Chris. We appreciate that. So are we alone in this? I know sometimes uh, Manitoba gets the cold before everyone else, or, you know, the idea that misery loves company. Are we going to be sharing some of this cold and unseasonably cold weather with any of our prairie brethren at the very least? Yeah, certainly the prairies are going to be below normal, but even if you go further south, uh, a lot of the center of the continent actually is is below normal. Um, there's been snow really, really far south in the United States as well, so at least we have that uh, to share our pain. 
Uh, just looking at the forecast, it, while it's going to be cold, it doesn't look like there's going to be any more snow maybe beyond today, at least for the foreseeable future. Is that? Am I interpreting that correct? Yeah, there's no major systems really on the horizon. There might be the odd flurry here and there, but uh, no major accumulations expected here for the next bit. All right. Chris Stammers, Environment Canada, joining us live on CJOB. Thank you very much, sir. No problem. Thank you. Now, the normal high for this time of year, by the way, is a high of 2 degrees and a low of minus 6. But just looking at the long-term forecast, we've got a high of minus 8 on Wednesday, high minus 10 on Thursday, Minus two on Friday, but then again, Saturday, minus six, minus eight on Sunday. Mm. And it's just this combo, I think, this morning. A, it's a Monday, which I think the dra- the driving always on a Monday feels slower. <laughs> then you throw in that sort of warmer tempers- temperatures we had yesterday and then the snow last night and this morning. Uh, the traffic center in Winnipeg reporting a collision at Pemina and Killarney. We had that car into the building at uh, another location in Winnipeg on Pacific and Isabel. And so just a lot of people slipping and sliding out there. Just you have to... It's like that first, it's not our first snowfall, but I feel like November is always a harder driving month. Yeah, there's a reset there, I think. And, of course, looking forward to the weekend, the Blue Bombers will be in Calgary for the West semifinal. Had they been hosting that game, the forecast high at this point in Winnipeg for Sunday is a mix of sun and cloud and minus eight. Not much different in Calgary for Sunday. The high minus four under a mix of sun and cloud and a low of minus nine. That game starts 3.30 our time on Sunday. So somewhere between minus four and minus nine in Calgary for that game. So very, very parallel, shall we say, uh, weather situations in Calgary and Winnipeg, at least as it pertains to Sunday. If the game was to be held in Saskatchewan, would you have gone? No, I can't go back there. I can't go to Regina <laughs> twice in one month. <laughs> no, it's November. You went in October. Yeah, but it's a 30-day period. Oh, I see. The, 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 it's not the actual calendar month. Not the it's, calendar it's your month. 30-day window. Yeah, I don't think I... No, I don't think I can make that happen. Now, if we make a prediction for this weekend's game, I watched the Calgary-BC game on Saturday because I was curious if that would change things for us. I thought... I, I think we've got a real shot come Sunday. Well, uh, are you playing on Sunday? I didn't realize you were playing on Sunday, Loren. But Did I say me? No, no you said we. We. Oh, I'm, I'm no, no, you. it's, it's a always Kelly- a collective. It's a, Kelly, it's a Kelly Moore thing. Um, I think the Blue Bombers have every reason to be hopeful that they, they could win, even though they've only won five times since 1990 at McMahon Stadium. I think uh, Blue Bomber fans have reason for optimism. The, the Stampeders look beatable in their game on Saturday night, and the Bombers have played well against them. Zach Caleros, we don't know if he'll get the start. Everybody anticipating he will. Plays very well against Calgary historically, so uh, this is not a, a death march to be played for the Blue Bombers as they make their way from Winnipeg to Calgary in any way, shape, or form. They've got a real chance to win here. We want to start this half hour talking about the increased violence we're seeing in our city. Yeah, and it follows the 39th homicide of the year on Saturday with the death of Hunter Hayes Strait-Smith, who, of course, was the three-year-old stabbed in his own home while sleeping last week. He was taken off life support on Saturday. We know just hours before that there had been a shooting in the exchange. We know the weekend before that there was three homicides in two separate incidents. Quite frankly, it's getting hard to keep track, and you, you don't want these people to be numbers. You don't want them to be statistics. You want their names, their lives, and their deaths to mean something and we want to bring in someone now who's been spending his whole life to make sure that uh, people have find value in their life and in their homes sal burrows is the coordinator of the point power line in point douglas he works often with citizens patrolling his neighborhood it's been a decades of work for you sal and just before we came on air you said i'm a lot more frustrated than i've been in a long time tell me about that feeling what are you feeling right now well you know the the last time we had this high level of murder rate uh, 41 was when we had the mass murder in North Point Douglas where a woman threw gasoline on the front and back doors of a rooming house, set it on fire, and five of our residents died. And that's how we got up to 41. We're getting there on a whole series of ugly, unnecessary murders that are happening. And behind those murders is a whole string of levels of violence that uh, are totally unacceptable and we shouldn't be putting up with. And, uh, you know, we're holding our own in Point Douglas because the community is very heavily involved. Our elders uh, continue to keep an eye on what's going on and let us know where problem areas are. But uh, we need to 
respond, Danny Smythe continues to say, we need the community involved. The community, the police can't do it all. And I'll have to say over and over again, we cannot hire enough police and social workers to deal with these issues. The community, the regular people living in the community, not the social agencies, but the people who live there, have to be involved. And they're the ones who know who has the guns. They're the ones who know where the out-of-control parties, where these ugly murders often take place are. Self, people are frustrated uh, on a whole bunch of different levels with regards to the, the crime. I use the terminology in social media uh, the other night, lawlessness on the streets of Winnipeg. Yep. People are frustrated with the lack of consequences for those committing those crimes. Is that the key in point, Douglas, when people do stuff they're not supposed to and you make a call to the appropriate agencies, there are consequences for these illegal actions? Yes, but the consequences are very different than when people think we use the criminal justice system as little as possible because it's a slow, clunky process. So what do you do? Well, you know, our, our first response is eviction. And our elders, our Indigenous elders, have told us that that's the closest to banishment that we can use. So if we get a, a drug dealer going, our first call is if we know the landlord. And Michael Jack, remember, you were talking to me about getting me an updated list of uh, landlords. Uh, <laughs> we're having some trouble with that. My list is 10 years old. We call the landlord, and the la- most landlords don't want uh, a meth dealer in their houses and they move in they give them a, a warning or they evict them and the, the in North Point Douglas what happens is people know that if they do negative type behaviors drug dealing beating up women uh, stealing then something will happen and most and it can happen very quickly when you're not using the criminal justice system we try to reserve the criminal justice system for murder uh, violent attacks and stuff. Now, there's more of those than we would like, and there, I'm dealing with some issues right now where we've discovered that w- where a victim, particularly women, vulnerable women, won't cooperate with the police because they're afraid, um, nothing happens. We had a horrible beating on my street, and three neighbors phoned 911, three witnesses, and there's a video and the woman who was, you could see her on the video, being horribly beaten, uh, the police could, said they couldn't do anything. Well, you know, in Point Douglas, we don't take that. I call it my buddy Vic Taves, and you'll be, all be surprised, a good new Democrat like I have, <laughs> a friend that I've known for 30 years. And we, we explored this, and he says, well, from the judicial perspective, if there's other witnesses, they can. The judges right. will hear it. But there's this dislocate between the... Uh, Crown prosecutors and the police, and I think we're going to get some more action on that. But I keep saying, I said earlier, uh, we have all the tools at our disposal, but they aren't moving and changing fast enough to to move to where the the new where the bad guys are. And I get hell for using the term bad guys, but that's what I feel about their behavior. Why would you take flack for using that term for the bad guys? Well, you know, they it's a difficult it really is a difficult issue because many of the people committing these crimes are have been damaged in the past themselves, but we still have to hold them accountable for their behavior and the, the in parenting it's uh, you you identify the behavior not the person. So uh, mm. but when I get angry I Forget my politically correct language at times. You brought up the five rooming health housing deaths yeah. from the fire from 2011 because that's an example of the worst year we've seen for yes. a homicide rate, which is 41. But you, I think, did so because what we've been doing this year is we haven't had that one huge event that's like right. that. It's been individual bit by bit. So we yeah. are going to break that record, oh, yeah. and that's nothing yeah. to be proud of. No. Not just in Point Douglas. Like, what are you hearing from people when it comes to how they feel? Because we sit here and we talk often about how we feel frustrated and concerned. And it doesn't matter what the reality is. It's the perception. And so how would you compare this to previous years in the sense of that feeling on the streets of, I don't want to say despair, because you're working to fix things, but but just kind of that sadness of what the heck, Winnipeg? There's a huge frustration because the governments are talking up high up here and the action, the problem is down here. You know, we're you know we're sending David Asper to Minneapolis to study uh, downtown crime prevention. Minneapolis, which has close to triple the murder rate of Winnipeg. I mean, it's a junket. You know, David Asper can't pick up the phone and call me 
I don't, and I know other people that are working in the inner city on crime prevention. He hasn't called any of them. You know, he knows nothing about inner city, and that's where most of the crime's taking place. You know, the city of Winnipeg is doing a big study, Mayor Morris Penny, whatever the Myers Norris Penny, yep. Yeah, you know, they've hired them to do a report on crime prevention in the city of Winnipeg. They hired the same outfit that came up with their solution was to buy a second helicopter. You know, these are these are they're, they're wa- the city and the province are wasting our money. They're not coming into the inner city, spending a few nights on check nights and places like that, talking to inner city people, talking to inner city leaders about what can be done. And it's the resources are there, but they need to be changed. You know, if somebody asked me, what would I do right now to do something about this thing? I would say set up an emergency tip line. Take some of the police officers who are working 8.30 to 4.30 and make that tip line and make it real easy to phone and no waiting time and and say and advertise like mad. Ask CGOB and Global to put on the public service announcements. Phone this number if you know a drug house. Phone this number if you know people who have guns. And people will call. They will. Well, we, we've, we've got Crime Stoppers already for that. But, you know, what? Well, let's continue our conversation in a moment. Lorraine, <laughs> before we go, you were No, I just want to say let's just hit pause for a second, Sal, if we can, yeah. and we'll take a break. And if you yeah. can stick around, we'll, have, sure. we'll follow up on that thought and what, why you think that's different from other tip lines that might be out there. You, you're urging community members to get involved, and you made the comment about set up a tip line where people can call and make it super easy. But don't we already have Crime Stoppers for that? Well, yeah, but nobody knows Crime Stoppers' phone number in, in the inner city. You have to market. You have to market. In Point Douglas, we send out my home phone number, which we use for the power line. When we started, we sent it out every three weeks to every single house in Point Douglas. Now it's every two months, um, and we keep sending that. And uh, and so people know. And we did a, fr- a fridge magnet, you know. It's kind of a jokey one, you know. But we sent it out, and it's, most people have it on their fridges with our fr- because you're not thinking of phoning somebody when the event isn't happening. And those of people who are involved in retail sales and stuff know the importance of continual marketing. Why do commercials repeat themselves continuously on TV? Mm-hmm. We need to be doing that in, in crime prevention. The police and government is horrible at communicating with the people in the inner city. We get nothing, you know, because I live there. I know what comes through the mail and what comes through the door. It, You know, you miss stuff, uh, but everybody knows when that damn lime green power line flyer comes it's got that phone number there it talks about garbage pickup and it talks about identifying meth dealers and you know interestingly the we don't get many phone calls anymore because we don't have as much we still have crime but the majority of the calls we get are from young indigenous women who don't want their kids or their brothers and sisters getting hooked on meth they're really afraid of that meth stuff and it's a huge crisis in the in the city so they call and say what they say, ah, oh, there's a, 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 dealer a dealer up the street or next door to me, or they're talking to my kids on their way home. They're offering them free stuff, you know. And what we do is, depending on the call, you know, we have a very positive relationship with the community support unit of the Winnipeg Police. Hi, guys out there, you're fantastic. We get a hold of them. The first step is a visit. You know, a couple of 20-year police officers knock on your door and say, hey, we know you're dealing. Hey, I know you. Didn't I send you to Stony five years ago? Are you stupid? You're dealing in Point Douglas, don't you know? People call us. Nobody believes me. But 90% of the time after that visit, they stop. Now, they may only stop for six months or a year, and they pick up again. We do it again. But it sure beats the cost and the slowness of trying to send somebody to Headingley for three months for doing that. Everything you said sounds very relationship and trust dependent yes how do you build that and how do you how do you how do you continue to create it well i've said to the city of winnipeg they have a community development department they have a new director they need to go out and find the harry lahotskis the cell the uh you know the the people who in who live in the communities who are willing to do the work i'm mentoring three different people right now none of who get any support they're not members of organizations they're out doing stuff on their own you're mentoring like there's people who like who when you say finding the next uh, you basically it's about finding that young person who's going to take over the reins so yeah or you know i'm i can only do i'm 75 i can only do point douglas you know uh, but people call me peter who's doing some stuff in the far 
North End, uh, Annette Champion Taylor, who's been doing it for years through mm-hmm. Citizens on Patrol, but needs more support. Um, you know, the fellow, uh, I'm blocking on his name, in the West End, who's oh. taken on some of the apartment block owners. Those are the people, there's tons of people like out that light, like that out there. And the police are good at policing, but they're not good at community development. And the city of Winnipeg has a community development department. Get them going on that. In New York City changed, uh, not overnight, but it, it changed in short order when it, uh, you know, it took steps against graffiti, broken windows, all these little things yeah. that people in Winnipeg feel are being ignored because the, the, the big things are being ignored right now. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I hate to say I agree with the some of the New York approach because you know, uh, well, Giuliani, who's not the most progressive guy in the world. Some of but it it's was true. effective, right? But it's true. They now have one of the lowest murder rates in, in the United States of America. New York went from one of the highest to one of the lowest because they listened to the little people and uh, they responded to them. There's a perception, I think, you know, we've talked to you so many times in the past, yeah. and often I think people yeah. outside, say, the downtown or the core or yeah. Point Douglas will say, well, that's somebody else's problem. But I don't know if that's the sense in Winnipeg anymore. I think there's a feeling citywide of safety and concern. And so it, do you get that? Do you hear well, Do you well, hear that from outside your neighborhood? Well, we have a lot of people caring, but we'll sure find out very shortly whether people from the suburbs care because the city of Winnipeg has put up $100,000 for grants for small groups and individuals to do crime prevention. And we'll see how much of that goes to the suburbs where crime is there, but it's tiny in comparison. How much gets into the inner city, into the hands of people who are really doing the work. And, uh, you know, I'm holding that out as a, a judgment to see whether they're serious about really getting involved in crime prevention in the inner city. I hate to bring up New York uh, one more time, but I'm going to. The whole idea of if you see something, say something is absolutely critical in, in situations like this. Absolutely critical. And they, you know, we once, once again, Danny Smythe has taken the lead. I support him on this. The citizenry has to be involved. The police can't do it all. But on the other hand, we have way too many police officers working 8.30 to 4.30. We need way more police officers out on the streets. If a, The second thing I would do after the tip line is I would double the size of the community support unit from 12 to 24 in the north end and the west end, you know, and take some of the police officers who are doing important work but not as important and get them out into the community where they can follow up, not be on the queue, not just responding to 911 but getting out and following up onto those those houses. And I don't want to forget bylaw enforcement, you know. Uh, the little things add up. Oh, closing those meth houses and those, those dilapidated houses where people are squatting and, uh, you know, they, they can destroy a street. And if bylaw enforcement responds fast, then they can, you know, that can save the street. But otherwise people start moving out if you've got a meth house on your street. Sal Burroughs, coordinator of the Point Powerline in Point Douglas and a longtime advocate, been fighting for your community for decades. Thank you for coming in this morning, Sorry Sal. if I'm a little upset right now, but I think everybody in Winnipeg should be. Loren, it is the number one reason why Winnipeg police are called. And we're not talking robberies or stabbings or break-and-enters. We're talking domestic disturbances. Every year, Winnipeg police receive about 16,000 calls related to domestic violence. That's 44 calls for help every single day. And we're raising this issue this morning because we know it's part of the conversation following one of the more horrific crimes our city has ever seen. On Saturday, little Hunter Hayes-Smith straight was taken off life support He was stabbed in his sleep last Wednesday, allegedly by a man who police say had also assaulted his mother earlier that night. That suspect had a no-contact order with the mom, but that piece of paper we know was no protection. He didn't do anything to deserve what happened to him. He was an innocent little person who deserved to grow up. He deserved to have birthdays. He deserved all the things that yours and mine and our children will have this year. Uh, I think that we, a lot of us, we think about our own children and if something like this happens and, and how senseless it is and that we just want to protect our, our babies and, and pull them closer. That voice came from the vigil that was held last night outside the home where the three-year-old was stabbed. 
His family, Hunter's family, of course, just one of thousands in this province trying to break the cycle of violence. Mary Lobson is the executive director of Ending Violence Across Manitoba and joins us now. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. So frustrated is a word we've been hearing a lot this morning from various people we've been talking to. How do you characterize how you're feeling when you hear about something like this? Oh, wow. Well, I guess firstly, I just I want to express our our sympathy and condolences to Hunter's family. This is a a tragedy. I'm in Calgary right now, and this is a tragedy that I think everybody is talking about. Um, I'm hearing words like outrage and anger, and and I think there's an overwhelming sadness that um, as much as we have moved ahead on the issues of, of domestic violence, that um, it still continues. And here we see the example of one of the littlest victims. Um, so it just seems very senseless. Mary, uh, quite often when we hear about violence in our city, we we check the map, we uh, hear the address of a murder or an assault, and if it's in a certain neighborhood, we're, we seem to be almost comfortable with the notion that it, it's not in my backyard and that's somebody else's issue. My question is, can this, should this, will this be a line in the sand, what has happened to the little hunter here for for the city of Winnipeg, for the province of Manitoba, to, to see this as a crime against the entire community? Yeah, um, and that's a that's an important an important question, and certainly an important conversation. We know that domestic violence impacts everybody. Um, doesn't matter culture, race, religion, ethnicity, ability. Um, yeah, it crosses all all lines, and and I think that um, there's definitely kind of a, a thinking, as you say, that it. It doesn't happen to people like us. You know, it's not people that we know. It's not people in our circle. And I think part of the the challenge on this issue is that there's a silence around it, that people people don't talk about what's happening in their intimate partner relationships. They don't talk about what's happening in their homes. And as long as we continue to be quiet, um, it's difficult to make change because all we see, the public, the public face of it is things like what happened last week um, and not the ongoing trauma and pain and violence that is occurring every day in households across Manitoba. So this is a, a, a big question of what we do, what can we do, what should be done, but where does it begin? Is it about resources and dollars that have been put into helping to solve some of these issues? Is that where we start? Yeah, it's, you know, clearly it's complex. Um, Certainly funding uh, funding is always an issue. We always hear that, that women's organizations and anti-violence organizations are chronically funded. I can say that I, I saw a, a post on Instagram recently where uh, an organization had said that 50% of their annual operating costs are covered off by fundraising activities. And and it is, it's kind of crazy that the, this women's domestic violence sector um, that they that they have to resort to bake sales and fundraisers and garage sales to provide basic services uh, to to women and children and families in our province. Part of the so issue, funding, sorry, you're going to say funding is one of the things, oh, but is, the, yeah, is, is it also taking it seriously as a government? Do you think we're doing that? Um. I, you know, I, I think the, the numbers speak for themselves and there has not been a significant increase to funding of domestic violence services uh, in close to 10 years. So so that that says something about, you know, where dollars are being committed and priorities. Um, you know, we also know that there are opportunities for um, increased collaboration across government departments. And I think one of the one of the key areas that we have been identifying for a, a period of time is education and the ability to incorporate um, curriculum that talks about healthy relationships, um, conflict, conflict resolution, um, talking about domestic violence, um, ways to recognize it, you know, so that, that kids have an understanding um, of what healthy relationships look like or not. It can be difficult to discern if you've grown up in violence. How do you know something different than that?
So there's there's lots of opportunities to do more. There, there, it's clear that women are falling through the system. Uh, we just got a text message from a, from a man who's in a uh, uh, in an abusive relationship. But what about the kids? Like, clearly, children are most at risk in in any situation like this, and they're if they're in the middle of it. Uh, absolutely, they are. They are at risk, and I guess um, you know it's hard. It's hard to keep kids safe when women aren't safe or adults aren't safe, right? If, um, you know, and so where we can prioritize the safety of women, men, people of all genders that are experiencing violence, their children are going to be safe. And so we, we really need to um, look at prevention. And, you know, we've been without a provincial strategy on domestic violence now for some time. Um, and so that's something that we need to look at again. Mary Lobson is Executive Director of Ending Violence Across Manitoba, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mary, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Now, Greg, we learned... uh Something big in terms of Alberta and the oil industry last week. No question about it. And as the final votes were being counted for the federal election October 21st, the conversations surrounding Western alienation were beginning. Now, those sentiments didn't start two weeks ago. They have been a factor for decades in our country, but are being magnified by the economic hardship being felt in Saskatchewan and Alberta. A new documentary exploring Alberta's oil and gas industry aims to present both sides of the climate change versus the big oil conversation. Global Warming debuted the day before the election, October 20th, on Super Channel. My name is Matthew Embry, and I've been creating awareness about CO2 and global warming since my grade five science project in 1987. 30 years later, I watched my hometown, Calgary, Alberta, become economically devastated due to climate change politics. So I went looking for hope, and what we found was chilling for Calgarians, Canadians, and people all over the world. My friends, you have a moral imperative. We all live on this planet. Quit lying to yourselves. A hard one lesson for many environmentalists is that facts don't change minds. Cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing. The world needs energy, and we're very fortunate here in Canada that we have energy. Build that pipe! Build that pipe! Celebrities campaigned against that pipeline, and they were successful. So I've personally flown uh, DiCaprio. The movie stars and the celebrities are just the worst. Uh, They're usually ill-informed, don't want to be informed. Greenpeace was one of the organizations that was most involved in exposing the massive amount of greenhouse gas emissions. We really haven't invited a lot of media here to have these discussions. There is absolutely no basis in fact or science against Canadian oil over other oil. Matt Ambry joins us from Calgary. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. And, and it's an outstanding documentary, regardless of the, the side of the conversation you come down on. And, and I've... I was going to reach out to you anyway, but it really became apparent time was of the essence last week. And Brett referred to this before we came into the segment, the announcement that a company which had its headquarters in a, get this, 1.7 million square foot, 58-story tower in downtown Calgary was moving its headquarters to the United States and changing its name. Now, they're not moving all the people out of there. They're not tearing the building down, but they're moving to the States and they're changing their name from the outside, this feels like a massive blow to Calgary's overall image and, image and economy. Is it? Well, I mean, I mean that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I think for the operations in Calgary, I think it's business as usual. Um, but I think that what we're what we're experiencing is is the concept of this migration of business from Calgary to the U.S. and other parts of the world, and the lack of. Um, investment coming from around the world into Calgary is one of the major problems. And in that conversation is the challenge and the ongoing challenge of getting oil to the coast and the impact that's had on the economy. And that's led to conversations about separation. Is that real or is that just a fringe group right now, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you, yeah, I was at a house party this weekend and, you know, separatism is coming up in conversations that are, you know, outside of the fringe. But right now it does feel like a little bit of a fringe movement, but it's, it's going to be hard to tell because, you know, in the process of making the documentary, 
the word separatism kept coming up and up with, with numerous people we spoke to. And this was months ago, uh, prior to the election, uh, with the problems we have with the pipelines. So, you know, there's a different, seems to be a, a different story every day about this challenge of, of getting uh, the product, and Loren mentioned it, to Tidewater, whether, whether that be the Pacific Ocean or, you know, some people have mentioned the idea of maybe using Churchill and Hudson's Bay to, to help alleviate some of the, the glut of oil and gas that, that is in the ground in Alberta that could be marketed elsewhere. Just talk about that, that genuine challenge and, and just... You know, geography speaks for itself, but there's just something that Alberta is never going to be able to uh, slice off a piece of Canada and uh, have a coastline. Yeah, I mean, not having pipelines to get the oil and gas to, to markets internationally is a massive problem for Alberta. And I think that, you know, in the, in the process of the documentary, we went down to Texas, you know, where we learned that. I believe two years ago, it was four or six pipelines went for application. Two are already going, and a number are already going to happen in the next year. I mean, the, the demand for fossil fuels is not slowing down. And, and this is a global reality that Canadians need to face. And not having our product uh, to market is a significant problem economically for the province and ultimately for the country. Do you think there's a, just a bunch of us on the outside looking in? And I'm curious where you landed at the end of putting this all together. You know, when, when you're sitting away from it, it's easy to say, okay, we need to cut back on our oil or we need to change what we're doing. But we don't often change our habits in our own life that might contribute to that. I have family in Alberta. I've been to the oil sands. I've toured them. I've seen what it's looked like. And, you know, you had opinions going in and they changed when you came out and they've changed again since. How often did you fluctuate back and forth between those sides of environment, economy, and, and what we should do as a nation when it comes to this big burning question? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I mean, I saw the oil sands way back, I think it was 2005. So I've, I've been aware of the of the story and I've been aware of the, of the images that I saw. And I think what, for me, what I had to learn was what the oil sands actually were. I mean, yes, if you see those images of mining, they're not pleasant to look at. And I don't care if it's an oil sands mine or if it's a gold mine or a lithium mine. Mining is a very, um, it's, it's a hard image to see. And the, the story of the oil sands, the reclamation, it's a long story to tell. And I think that in the, in the process of making the film, that's what we're trying to get to the world. Like, yes, okay, here, here's what it looks like, but here's what it looks like. These are 100-year projects. Um, so to articulate that is not easy, especially in one image. So it's more like we look at it. I, I even remember when I first drove in, I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I'm on another planet. Like it had this, just ugly, right. this whole ugly look to it, and it was super easy as a result of that to judge it in that moment before we paused and learned all the other things that were happening. That's right, and it, and, it, and it takes time, it, it, and you have to sit down, you have to, to meet with the companies and learn exactly what their short and long-term plans and goals are, and actually go visit territories that have been reclaimed, and see, you know, they, they mean business, and this is a reality, and, you know, and we live in a world today where a couple images in National Geographic have, have really made up the mind for a lot of people. Well, and the images that you show in the documentary are absolutely mind-boggling, not only on the side and the, with, the, with the detail that Loren described them on the bad side, but the images speak for themselves on the good side as well as what has happened 40, 50 years later uh, after the, the beginning of reclamation projects. Yeah, and those reclamation um, processes are getting more and more refined and more interesting. And when you actually go up there and see exactly what they're doing to restore um, the, the, the biodiversity there and to actually get the topography so it was like it was before, I mean, it's, it's an incredible process that, that's happening. But again, that's not getting a lot of screen time uh, in the mainstream media, either in commercials or in documentaries. So with this documentary, you've decided to present both sides of the coin. We heard voices on either side of the debate in that setup clip that Greg pulled. Uh, was, that, was it difficult to not pick a side? Yeah, I mean, I think from, from my perspective, I mean, I, to be honest, I didn't know how polarizing the issue was until I got that involved. I mean, I'm from Calgary, uh, but when I actually dove into the issue, I, you know, I said, okay, this is a... People really have strong opinions on this one side or the other. So what I want to do is make sure we embed our crews and both sides of this. Let's figure out exactly what both sides are saying um, and, and give them, try to give them equal screen time as much as we possibly can. Let these voices be heard and 
through that, let's hope we can find a third or a middle voice to get these two sides to come together. What really bothers me is that we have this concept that if, you, if you're, say, pro-industry or pro-oil, that you're somehow against the environment. And, and that's not necessarily true. You can be pro-environment, you can be pro-industry, and you can be pro-Canada. You can be all three of those things, not just one or the other. I think the one thing that frustrates me the most, uh, because I'm still in the middle on this, I'm still doing my homework, but it is frustrating to me that those that say they love and care about the environment are okay with uh, with trains carrying uh, tankers full of, of oil through the Fraser Valley, I always use as the example, some of the most beautiful country anywhere on the planet, comfortable with the notion, the possibility of that train jumping a track and ending up in that river versus uh, versus a pipeline that goes through geography that that has been well-established when we're talking about twinning uh, this uh, Kinder Morgan pipeline. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, the amount of hypocrisy in this conversation is, is, is dramatic, right? And I think that, I mean, I have a lot of time for people who come to the table who want to get off all types of energy and go back to nature and, and, and try to live that way. But I really struggle with people who, you know, are arguing for a life that is fossil fuel free, but are unwilling to give up their cell phone and their private, you know, their planes and all this type of stuff. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's tough to, it's a tough pill to swallow there. So where can people see the film? I know it's been on super channel. Is it going to be available in other forms and uh, other ways to access, access it, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, so right now, if you go to superchannel.ca, you can watch it for free uh, through Amazon Prime, and there's a number of other ways you can access it through VOD. So we're trying to get it accessible to as many Canadians as possible and to people around the world. All right. Matt Embry joining us live from Calgary to talk about his documentary, Global Warning. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Matt. We appreciate this. Thank you for covering it. I really appreciate it, too. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.